Hello, and welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton. This podcast is supported by patrons like you. Just visit www.buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride to register your support and offer any financial contributions you're able to. And as always, if you're unable to support the podcast financially, ratings and reviews are hugely appreciated. So take a moment and offer us a review. It really helps with our discoverability. This week on the podcast, I've got part two of my interview with Gregor von Medessa. If you haven't listened to it already, hit stop right now and go back one episode in your feed and look for part one with Gregor. Gregor is a writer based in Namibia who recounts his ride at the Munga in South Africa, a race dubbed the world's toughest race. Gregor's got a lot of interesting stories about this thousand kilometer race and his motivation to complete the event on behalf of a charity called Bicycle Empowerment Network Namibia. I'll put a link to that charity in the show notes so you can consider a contribution. It's a very worthy cause, and I think you'll love it when you hear Gregor's explanation of the impact it's having throughout Namibia. So with all that said, let's dive right into part two with Gregor talking about the Munga. Now that you've stepped up to the Munga and it's a thousand plus kilometers, how many days are out there? How many days were you out there? And I'm assuming at this level of distance, you needed to sleep. And can you just talk about what your days were like out there? Yeah. So the, the, the days and the nights become all, all a big mess at, at one point. But so I, I had kind of a mental objective to finish um, around four days. And actually that's what ended up happening. So I was, I finished in about 90 hours. So that was just a, a few hours short of four days. Um, and I was riding, of course, it's, it's a solo, um, race, but you are, uh, you still obviously allowed to kind of ride with in groups as long as you don't draft. In fact, you can draft the, the race rules say that you can draft for the first 200 kilometers or so until the first race village. And then after that, uh, you can still ride in with, with buddies or whatever, but you, you, you can't, uh, draft. So you, you have to uh, keep some distance between yourselves or, 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 or cycle next to each other. And so I ended up um, cycling the better part of the race, 800 kilometers, with a made in Namibia tough nut, uh, Henti Hu, uh, who's a good friend of mine, um, way more experienced uh, than I am, way faster, I should say, than I am as well, and who doesn't need as much sleep. But so he was really the pace setter, and it was actually super fun and fantastic to be able to ride with him uh, for the better part of it. We had a lot of fun together. Um, met a lot of other people on the way um, and his objective was really not to sleep until um, for the first actually more than the first half of the race which I wasn't sure how my body would react to that uh, so what we ended up doing is we started at uh, noon on the 2nd of December rode through the entire afternoon through the entire first night uh, obviously had some race villages there where we could obviously you know refuel get some proper food uh, in all the race villages, there's um, sleeping facilities, um, so that's fantastic. But we skipped the first one uh, that we reached in the middle of the first night, as many riders would. Uh, you're pumped with adrenaline, Craig, by that time, so you're obviously not not up for all sleeping at all. Anyway, um, we just had come out of a, of a 40, 30, 40k section, really rough that I didn't expect to be that rough, of single track and jeep tracks. 
in the middle of the night. Uh, amazing. So you come out of that and you're completely pumped. So there's no way on earth you're going to sleep there, uh, even if it's the middle of the night. And then you, we continued another, uh, another kind of day until, until midday. There was a second race village. Same thing. Didn't feel like sleeping there either. And then we actually carried on. We carried on the entire afternoon of that. And then eventually when we hit 400 kilometers, so that was um, uh, for the second sunset, 400 kilometers being around 300 miles or so, um, we, uh, we faced a lot of headwind. And that was for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours of riding solid in headwind straight. And there we realized when, when it was getting dark for the second time that we, we would have to probably stop at one point and get a little bit of sleep so that's the first time we we then stopped and it, were you carrying sleeping gear no we were not um so the the race this race is um officially called a semi semi-supported race um so meaning that you can really race it and some some people but not many i think do carry minimal um bivy equipment at least i'm, I'm aware of one rider who did um, but otherwise you can really go light. So you would probably, what I did, uh, have with me in case that's of interest. I, I had, um, uh, Epidura 14 liter that actually our good friend Dan <laughs> kindly brought to me to Namibia. So I had that at, uh, at my back seat, uh, under my saddle, um, just to carry basically some warm clothing because, um, yeah, as you would expect in the desert, scorching hot in in the day, so 40 Celsius plus, I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, I guess around 100 wow. um, during the day. And it goes right down to, um, I, I should say, sometimes close to freezing, um, but but not this year. This year was, was okay-ish. Apparently, it was quite cold still compared to other years. Uh, but you definitely need uh, a number of layers for us. I think it was uh, five or seven degrees. Um, so yeah, with, with sleep deprivation and, and, and obviously, you know, dehydration, whatever, obviously you, you feel the, the, the cold a little bit more as well. So you basically carry a few layers of clothing for, for the night. Um, and then you've got enough, um, ability to carry water. That's super important, of course. So I had actually four water bottles with me, nearly four liters in total. Uh, I didn't carry any um camel bag or anything i didn't want to have anything on my back that's just a personal choice um so i arranged my bike so that it could basically carry everything on on the frame itself so i had uh, two bottles um inside the frame and another two bottles on either side of my fork uh front fork and then basically just basic uh pouch basically for my electronics I had a dynamo, which worked wonders for me. I, I was very happy to actually have that uh, to recharge my uh, my phone and my my Wahoo, um, and then work on the light for for the night uh, with a little um, mini Petzl um, head torch, which which helped uh, a lot as well. So that was a good combination be between the head torch and, and the dynamo, and then just a food pouch at uh, at the side of my handlebar just to carry. A little bit of food with me the the biggest stretch that we had without having any um, refueling uh, ability was about 100k so probably 70 miles or so in the middle of the day so if it's during the night that's not too bad but middle of the day you you really start to struggle basically and, and start thinking a lot and planning and calculating with your water yeah i was going to ask if if the the cooler evening temperatures made you more efficient and cover more mileage in the evening than 
in that hot day sun. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it, I, I, I would say the, um, um, the night riding was awesome. Um, especially after, um, a luxurious 60 or, or, or 70 minutes of sleep. Um, I remember the first time we actually stopped for, for, for a nap. Uh, that was the second night we had, uh, I think respectively 60 and 90 minutes of sleep or so between, uh, myself and, and Henty. And then we hit the, the road again. Um, and you feel so refreshed. It's un- unbelievable how the, the body works. Just having not slept an entire night and then barely sleeping for 60 or 90 minutes um, in the second night, I remember hitting. What's that like when the alarm goes off after 60 minutes? Are you just disoriented <laughs> and confused? I wanted to punch Henty in the face because he's the one who actually uh, did the good job of, of setting the alarm and waking me up. And, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, you, yeah, you kind of, I think you're in this zone of, of the racing and you, you're completely pumped, Craig. I mean, I think that's the, that's the amazing thing with those ultra endurance events is that you, you really get into it so quickly and you, um, it's impressive the ability of the body to, to overcome sleep deprivation and, and, uh, um, so you are, I would say, after those very short power naps. I mean, wasn't it Napoleon who conquered the entire Europe just, you know, on power naps, basically of fifteen minutes? <laughs> so, so basically, you 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 come out of those and you're completely refreshed. I remember the second night after that power nap at midnight, we hit the road again, and we were we were cruising. I mean, we were hitting it, you know. And then, of course, you know, there, there's no secret. I mean, at one point it hits you back because obviously your body is sleep deprived. So you can't cheat your body that long uh, either, but you you do actually have tremendous reserves and resources. At one point, I have to admit, I wasn't sure anymore if I was actually seeing straight or was hallucinating. I, I start seeing a lot of, that was on the third night, I think, start seeing um, scorpions, but, you know, plural, <laughs> many of them, <laughs> huge ones crawling across the tracks, uh, you know, attracted by my light. And I wasn't sure if, if if you know, I was still making sense. Um, but actually I didn't, you know, I found out later that actually I was seeing straight. There wasn't, uh, I wasn't hallucinating and there were, there were, you know, there were spiders that were actually part of a, of a large spider species type. Um, they were not scorpions, but they really looked like them. So yeah, you have your moments where you kind of go like, okay, that's getting a bit dodgy. But, uh, but apart from that, it, it was, it was beautiful. Yeah, I've heard of I've heard of the existence of sleep monsters from ultra marathon friends and adventure racing friends, where their teammates just sort of start speaking lunacy about what they're seeing. Well, I mean, on that note, I, I didn't I didn't experience it, but I heard from one rider who came up to me, kind of laughing, saying, "Great, you know, you know what happened to me last night is he um, he basically there was so much headwind and he was so tired." That at one point he felt like he could, half dreaming, half awake, he could kind of lean into the wind. <laughs> and obviously you can't really lean onto the wind when you're on your bike cycling, right? But somehow he started dreaming that he could. And he actually did. And only to obviously realize that that, that wasn't physically possible when he actually woke up while crashing on the ground because <laughs> obviously... <laughs> There was a bit of an issue going on there. So, yeah, I mean, the sleep monsters are real. Uh, another guy crashed into a gate simply because I think his head was just falling asleep and he, he didn't actually notice the gate was coming up and he just like went straight into it. So, yeah, you hear all sorts of things going on. Um, 
which I, I have to admit, I, I, I was really just only softly experiencing. So I had a, a fairly good experience with that until I must admit the fourth night, that was just too much. So I, at one point I really had to take a, a break. And this is where also my good friend Henty, who is a tough nut Namibian, uh, basically just carried on. And I was just like, okay, like I, I, I just need to stop, mate. I just need to, to have a bit of a break. And then this is where, technically speaking, my race made absolutely no sense because I actually stopped just 100K, 150K before the finish line. I literally stopped for eight hours. So I slept six hours, didn't put my alarm clock, just went like, yeah, I just need to sleep. That's it. I'm just going just gonna <laughs> to shut down like a baby. And I did. And then I had a beautiful shower, had three plates of lasagna. You know, I just basically really took my time. Um, so from purely racing point of view, that was an absurdity. And I broke all the kind of unspoken rules of the Munga, I guess, by stopping there at the <laughs> very end. Um, but, but it was beautiful. The benefit of it is obviously I finished the race strong, uh, fresh, far too strong, far too fresh. I could have carried on for another uh, many miles after that beautiful sleep. But basically, I ended on that Sunday morning, the 6th of December, which in, in, in many countries in Northern Europe, in Belgium at least, resonates with uh, St. Nicholas, which is a beautiful uh, party day for kids. Um, and I basically rolled into the sunrise uh, and to the finish line with a with a amazing spirit and just fresh legs and fresh mind and really enjoying it. And I guess... Maybe blessing in disguise is that um, finishing in that sense, first of all, with the honorable still, I think, four-day mark that I had kind of artificially set myself, but also just full of enthusiasm for, for next races rather than being, I think, completely disgusted and not wanting to ever see my my curve again. Um, so um, so I think that also had a, a you know beautiful end and a, a good advantage to it. That's an amazing result. You did mention to me that you had a few physical challenges to coincide mm. with the sleep deprivation along the way. And there was maybe an interesting solution that became materialized for you. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if we want to go there. These are kind of bad memories, uh, but, <laughs> but certainly big lessons learned. So, yeah, I, I never had experienced um, saddle sores before. I, I didn't really know what they were. And I had done, obviously, my very modest riding and as an average cyclist, but I, I, I had done, you know, a couple of... I would say fair distances in terms of testing my my physical uh, perhaps ability or fine tuning gear and, and and kind of testing a little bit the limits, but never had I experienced. I was lucky enough never to have experienced saddle sores even on the 500k rides or um, uh, multi day riding that I had done. Um, so it's completely new to me. 800 kilometers into the ride, all of a sudden, um, big alarm bells basically start ringing downstairs <laughs> um and um and and yeah and i had to come to the realization that this is aha this is what our this is what saddle soles are uh and goodness me it hurts <laughs> <laughs> so really i mean basically my downstairs was on fire um and uh and i didn't really know what to do anymore at that stage i just realized that from what i had kind of heard from others and is that once that hits you, it's it's kind of difficult to um, to to treat it as you go. I mean, it's really about prevention. So I had tried everything that I could with you know anti-chafing, uh, as I would usually do on on longer rides anyway. Um, but then once it hits you, especially because you don't really leave your body to to rest, 
especially the first three days. I mean, literally, there was very little rest, actually. There was only maybe a couple of hours here and there between a, a few minutes of sleep. Um, as I said, cumulatively, I think I had three power naps of, you know, 60, 90 minutes and then another 25 minutes and then uh, perhaps another 30 minutes or so. That was pretty much all I, I rested really um, for the first three full days. Um, and then maybe you know the time when you when you eat or whatever. But otherwise, you're always in your bibs. Um, and at one point, yeah, I guess it just starts developing. <laughs> um, and so um, and so once that hits you, I, I didn't really know what to do anymore. And I was in this place in the middle of the the Tankwakaru at that point. It was towards already kind of the last segment of the race, or so maybe another 200 miles to go. And uh, I was in pain, Craig, at that point. And so I, I hit this this place, um, this this um, petrol station and, and kind of cafe in the middle of nowhere and um, held by two hippies, beautiful people. Uh, Susanna, I will remember her my entire life. Very compassionate Susanna, um, who basically saw me in pain. She asked me, so what do you need? And I said, well, if you if you sell a new pair of, of bum cheeks, I, 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 would, I would love to buy those. Um, but she didn't have bum cheeks to sell, but she said, you know, I, I can offer you maybe a solution that I've seen many riders um, struggling with uh, saddle sores, basically going for my remedy. And so she took me behind her counter because she realized I might be a little bit embarrassed about the solution. And she said, yeah, so here are sanitary pads uh, for ladies. And actually put those into your Lycra um, they they probably would work for you. That's amazing. So I was like, really? Um, is that? I mean, I had never heard about that. So maybe that's something that actually is 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 a fairly well known fact. But uh, but of course, all of a sudden, it started making sense. I was like, yeah, it makes sense, right? I mean, it's padding. It's it's obviously you know um, hygienic. Um, it's absorbent. So if you have any any bleeding, which I don't think I had necessarily, but anything, any wetness, uh, you know, in the middle of the day or whatever. That could potentially work. So basically, I followed her advice. Um, she gave me a big hug. Off I went uh, with my sanitary pads in my in my lycra. Obviously, not in the middle, but kind of at the sides where the saddle saw. Um, if you want to know the geometry, and um, and yeah, I tested it out, and I wasn't sure the entire last part of the ride if actually it was working or if it was the soothing compassion of Susanna um, having taken care of me that actually made it but but it certainly brought me through the finish line still with a bit of pain but um, but yeah so maybe that's something to be to be uh, uh, to be patenting <laughs> I apologize for making you revisit that discomfort but it sounds like even the thought of Susanna's kindness was uh, gave you a little bit of a smile today. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and and certainly if any of the listeners have, I think, other advisors, maybe I would really encourage them to, to share them because I think saddle sores is never a fantastic, glamorous topic to talk about. But certainly in my case, I was like, goodness me, if anyone can give me a solution now. <laughs> so, um, so, so yeah, so I, I look forward to other stories um, that other listeners may, may want to share also on, on, that, on that very glamorous topic. <laughs> so the manga was obviously a huge personal goal of yours, and it sounds like you know, it was known in the cycling community in Namibia, so it's a big feather in your cap. But you were not only motivated by your own personal desires and goals, 
you were motivated by a particular cycling charity, and I, I'd love to highlight that a little bit for the listener. Mm, no, thanks, Craig. And, and indeed, I mean, we, we, we spoke a little bit about, you know, meaningful or the meaning in, in, in cycling and the purpose that that also comes with it. And so I was lucky enough, I mean, in in Namibia, um, I'm, I'm very passionate and I'm working on um, on including uh, on public health issues and, and child rights issues. And so uh, realizing that um, community health uh, workers who basically have to, in a country like Namibia especially, have to walk very long distances sometimes to actually reach remote communities and, and deliver services to um, the children who need, it, uh, who need those services most. Um, basically, a lot of their time is, is spent because of um, lack of transport um, or, or, or inadequate transport and having to walk low, long distances. And so um, what we've experienced in the past is, is obviously community health workers then um, being equipped with a, something as simple as a bicycle um, actually obviously enables their work quite a bit. And therefore, the impact that this has on uh, the well-being of, of children and, and children being able to access more efficiently, uh, fast and more regularly, uh, the important health services that they that they require. And so obviously the connection was quite um, instantaneous in terms of the cycling. So I thought if I already kind of suffer on my saddle for so many hours, I might as well just, um, you know, use that event um, for, for a bit of uh, public awareness around the issues pertaining to to child rights, um, but also the, the the struggles, obviously, of accessing public health services and and the many opportunities uh, for children to to be better equipped when when they actually are um, are able to access uh, public health services. And so, long story short, um, I basically reached out to through a common friend to. Uh, to a, a guy called Michael Linker, who basically had started an NGO many years ago here in Namibia um, called the Bicycle Empowerment Network. And basically this NGO is precisely doing that. It's, it's basically reaching out to the most remote uh, communities and, and through cycling, um, bringing um, physical activity, physical education uh, to children, to community members, but also for the purpose of transport, reducing transport costs, and in the case for community of community health workers, as a real tool for them to be able to deliver their services more efficiently. And so um, everything fell into place quite quickly in the sense of me then wanting to use the Munga as a fundraising event um, and, and, and raising public awareness. Um, and it, it worked really uh, way beyond my my initial or our initial expectations also with with Michael and so um, with the support of friends and and family members um, who I really really like to take the opportunity actually uh, through your podcast Craig to to thank them all there are many of them and you know who you are uh, uh, basically um, immediately answered to to the call for support and so through the fundraiser, we've been able to to leverage um, uh, just over four thousand uh, equivalent of four thousand uh, euros, um, and and it's it's really worked wonders. Uh, four thousand, sorry, US dollars, I should say, um, and it worked wonders. So what we're going to do now with this funding is 
um, the ability for us now to bring more bikes to the community health workers, but also the Bicycle Empowerment Network has already established a web of, um, of hubs that actually maintains in, uh, those bicycles in, in the north of the country. Because very often, of course, when a bicycle um, is, is given um, and there's no ability to then maintain the bicycle or something as simple as the chain brakes or, or even, even the tire uh, gets a puncture or whatever you, um, then, then of course the, the risk is that this bicycle will not be used anymore. So the beauty of, of what uh, we've been linking with is that um, there's already a system and a whole community of support around bicycle use basically for community health workers. Um, so the contribution that we are bringing is, is really just to strengthen um, even further um, the, 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 the public health system. Uh, in, in that part of the country. Um, so it's been a beautiful, meaningful, I think, way for me to connect that ultra-endurance, very personal kind of endeavor, and you're in your bubble and you kind of cycle, but at the same time feeling throughout supported um, by all my friends and family members and basically able to, to connect, therefore, also to, to the wider meaning of, of, of cycling and, and having cycling really as a tool for development and for betterment of, um, of child rights. That's absolutely amazing. Is there a way for our listeners to contribute to that NGO at this point? Absolutely. So um, what you could probably do, Craig, is, is to put the, the NGO's website there. You can also put my contact details. Um, there's uh, the ability to still contribute to the NGO and to, um, to the donation uh, fundraiser is still open, of course, um, and anyone who feels or it resonates with, um, with the ability and the willingness to contribute, obviously more than welcome. Amazing. I will definitely put that in the show notes. Gregor, the conversation has been absolutely a pleasure. I really enjoyed hearing about the Munga and the Desert Dash and everything you've done for the cycling community in Namibia. And yeah, just thanks so much for the time. Thanks to you, Craig, and thanks to the cycling community for what they've done for me. So fantastic having been on your show, Craig. Um, we'll continue listening avidly to, uh, to all the tips and conversations that you are able also to bring. And, and thanks to you really for, um, for enriching um, our passion and, and the global cycling community, Craig, through your podcast. Cheers. Cheers. So that's it for this week's episode of the Gravel Ride Podcast. I appreciated Gregor's time, and I hope you enjoyed listening. This was our first episode with a guest from the continent of Africa, and it was really exciting to learn a little bit more about how gravel is crossing the globe and new events are cropping up all over the place. We've got another great event from Africa, the Migration gravel event in Kenya that we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. So keep tuned for that. If you're not already a subscriber, please hit the subscribe button. And if you're interested in talking between episodes, and I certainly hope you are, I encourage you to join the ridership. It's our new forum for gravel and adventure cyclists. You can visit www.theridership.com for your invite today. Until next time. Here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.